it is not just what is written in the law. It is really the way the law is interpreted. Of course, in a company, even when you have a very strong anti-corruption program, you can still have an isolated incident of a black sheep, an employee, who doesn't comply with the rules and perpetrates corruption. Comparative US, France, and UK anti-corruption laws with Valentina Lana. How would you introduce the conversation today to compare US, France, and UK anti-corruption laws? Thank you, Leo. It is a pleasure to, uh, to talk to you again today in our second episode of the anti-corruption series of the podcast. Uh, yes, we promised last time that we would talk about the um, US, the UK, as well as the um, French anti-corruption laws. I think we could just give a quick intro a chronolog in chronological order uh, to the three legislations and then uh, be a bit more pragmatic. We'll be very theoretical at the beginning. We were extremely theoretical last time and uh, define uh, what commercial organizations should do to fight against corruption. Uh, I think this is what people are interested in. What do I need to do very practically to effectively fight against corruption? How does that sound? That sounds well, and I think it covers the the need for clarification, right? To lay the ground uh, just how you did in our first episode. Please go ahead. So I will start with the American law, the FCPA, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, that was adopted in 1977, a response to the Watergate scandal in which hundreds of U.S. companies paid hundreds of millions of dollars to foreign officials, and these were bribes. And this is why the, the U.S. government wanted to react and adopted the FCPA. The CPA has two uh, categories of provisions, anti-bribery provisions, what we'll be talking about today, uh, but also accounting provisions, uh, um, record-keeping, internal control, and all the provisions that um, have as objective the uh, uh, prevention of any falsification uh, of, uh, of, the, of the books of a company. The goal of the FCPA is that the FCPA uh, prohibits the payment, the offer of the promise of uh, um, money or anything of value to a foreign official in order to influence an act or a decision of the, uh, of the foreign official and uh, with the purpose of obtaining, of retaining business. It is the so-called so business uh, test. There are three categories of uh, um, persons, both natural and legal persons, that are covered by the uh, anti-bribery provisions of the FCPA. Uh, number one is issuers. Uh, number two is domestic concerns. Domestic concerns can be residents or citizens of the U.S., as well as um, organization that are um, organized under the U.S. law or that have their main, uh, their principal place of business in the U.S. And the third, um, the third category is, is other uh, legal or uh, natural uh, persons that uh, operate, that act on the U.S. soil. What is very interesting about anti-corruption uh, laws, and this is not only the case of the FCPA, but also of the U.K. Bribery Act, the British law, as well as the French law, is that uh, these laws are in general uh, applied extraterritorially, which means that uh, the, the U.S. law can be applied to acts that are not perpetrated on the U.S. soil. 
And this happens uh, through a, a very specific legal notion, which is the means or instrumentality of interstate commerce. It could be uh, placing a call from or to the U.S. It could be uh, it could be the use of a U.S.-based email service, and most of us have a U.S.-based uh, email address. So this uh, opens the door to the extraterritorial application of the uh, FCPA, which is very broad. Some countries criticize the U.S. for their excessively broad application of the FCPA, which is in part legitimate. Uh, and there are situations in which the, the U.S. compensate for the inactivity of other countries, which is the case of France. Um, when France was very uh, lazy, I, I, I should say, um, and didn't take action on, uh, on the fight against corruption, um, the U.S. application, extraterritorial application of the FCPA was very, very intense, very per pervasive concerning France and French companies. But when in 2016, France adopted the uh, SAPN2 Act, the French anti-corruption law, this extraterritorial application, this interference coming from the U.S. Was, became less and less intense. Um, but again, very common characteristic of anti-corruption legislations is the extraterritorial uh, application. I said that uh, the FCPA covers the payment or the offer or the promise um, of money or anything of value, which means that uh, it doesn't only cover uh, a bribe uh, in cash, but also other, um, other uh, things can be offered or promised or paid. It can be, as I said before, cash, but it can also be uh, gifts. It can be uh, travel. It can be um, any kind of entertainment. And it can also be uh, charitable contributions. The fact that uh, a contribution is, is of a charitable nature uh, doesn't mean that it, it is not corruption. You can you can give uh, a charitable, uh, charitable contribution uh, and by that hide corruption. For example, you pay a char charitable contribution to uh, an organization uh, or an association on the board of which there is a person that you want to bribe for uh, other reasons. And you can use the charitable contribution as a way to, to disguise, to hide corruption. So even when it seems to be very Virtues, when it seems to be very uh, positive, like a charitable contribution, you can still have a uh, corruption behind that. Uh, I previously mentioned uh, entertainment uh, gifts in um, corporations. One of the main pillars, one of the main uh, um, one of the main procedures that are part of the anti-corruption program is the policy or gifts and invitation uh, procedures. As a company, you want to uh, limit the expenses on gifts and invitation to avoid any suspicion. If, for example, I invite a business partner to a very expensive uh, restaurant, it can be perceived as corruption, even though in the end it is not corruption. To prevent that kind of suspicion, companies tend to limit uh, the amount of money you can spend as an employee of the company to invite someone uh, for, for a dinner, for a lunch, uh, or a, tr uh, um, a trip, so that there is no suspicion of corruption. So this is one of the main uh, ingredients of uh, corporate anti-corruption programs. But uh, one lacks, I mean, the way, way I get lost is we are just looking at three countries, France, US, and UK, yeah. 
obviously for reason um, that that's what you have been diving into and that's what you do every day and i'm trying to see the power dynamics of these three countries how it reflects to their relations to other countries mainly the african the african countries how it applies but now why do you think there is this over or transnational enforcement into the anti-corruption law of the US. Is it the same? Is it reciprocal with UK and France? It is not something that is written um, in the law. Um, it is more of the diplomatic uh, choice. Um, a country like France or the UK or the US can have a law that uh, can be uh, applied extraterritorially, but in the end, the uh, extent of that application or of the enforcement really depends on uh, political slash diplomatic choices. It is not just what is written in the law. It is really the way the law is interpreted and the way the, um, the country at the highest level, uh, at the political level, wants to use uh, that law in some cases as a weapon for a trade war in some other situations as a way to compensate for the inactivity of another country. But it really goes from the legal level to the political level, to the high level uh, decision making of a country. And this is what is, is extremely interesting, because it, it is, as I said before, it is not just what you can read in the text of the law. And I have to say that for now, the extraterritorial application of the French law, for example, is not particularly broad. It's not particularly intense. It might change in the future, uh, but for now, the French law, it could be applied extraterritorially. It can be, but that application is not particularly extensive for the time being. Present, come up with a specific case. We could understand how this anti-corruption um, trend is actually happening in the field. I will, I will answer in, in, in a different way. And I will refer not just to uh, uh, natural persons, uh, but to legal persons uh, to see what companies can do uh, to prevent corruption or when they find themselves in a situation of corruption, which will lead me to provide further explanation um, about the US and the UK system. So what is interesting to know is that uh, Commercial organizations uh, have to uh, create a uh, compliance program, an anti-corruption program. The obligation uh, is of a direct nature in France. Uh, the French law, Article 17 of the French anti-corruption law, uh, prescribes uh, the creation of an anti-corruption program. And it says exactly what the components, what the ingredients of the anti-corruption program have to be. In the US, in the UK, there is no such an obligation. There is no direct obligation for companies to create an anti-corruption program. But the obligation is of an indirect nature, which leads me to give you more information on the, uh, on the UK law. The UK law in 2010, the UK Bribery Act, created a new offense, which is called failure to prevent. Failure to prevent means that a company has not put in place all the efforts, all the, uh, uh, all the means necessary to prevent corruption, which means that if one of the uh, people associated with the company, it can be an employee, it can be a, a director, 
perpetrates an act of uh, corruption, prosecutors and judges will assess if the company did all it could to prevent that episode of corruption, that act of corruption from happening. Of course, in a company, even when you have a very strong anti-corruption program, you can still have an isolated incident, a black sheep, an employee who doesn't comply with the rules and perpetrates corruption. So the prosecutors and in the end, the judges will assess, will try to understand if that was just an isolated episode and just an isolated incident, or if the company did not put in place all that was needed uh, to prevent that uh, form of corruption, that episode of corruption. So the question uh, that, that comes spontaneous is, what does a company need to do to not find itself in a situation of failure uh, to prevent? And the natural answer is to put in place an anti-corruption program. So the UK law doesn't tell company you need to put in place the anti-corruption program that needs to be this way. But it says if you want to avoid a situation of failure to prevent, and then the guidelines, the principles that are um, given by the um, UK legislator are not as precise as uh, what is contained in the French law, but still extremely similar. A uh, very uh, similar system in the, in the US, no direct obligation for companies to create an anti-corruption program, um, but there are instructions given to prosecutors to assess what a company has done when one person associated with that company perpetrated uh, an act of corruption. And again, if the company has an anti-corruption program, if the company put in place uh, robust measures to prevent corruption, there will be uh, no, um, no penalty for, uh, for the company. So again, obligation indirect in the UK and in the US system, the obligation to create an anti-corruption program direct in France. But in the end, what needs to be done to prevent corruption at a corporate level is the, uh, the definition, the creation, and the implementation of a robust and efficient and an effective anti-corruption uh, program. And now comes the very interesting part. Up until now, I told you the, 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 what, what is different um, between the French system and the UK system, the UK system and the US system. But what is very interesting, and it comes as very good news uh, for companies, is that in the end, the components, the ingredients of a robust anti-corruption program are the same, whether it is according to the US law, to the British law, to the French law. As I said before, it comes at good news for companies, in particular for multinational companies, because it means that uh, a robust anti-corruption program, according to the French law, can be considered as a more or less resistant, but quite resistant to the scrutiny of the US as well as UK uh, authorities and regulators. This is why companies uh, uh, should consider themselves uh, 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 in a safe place if their uh, anti-corruption program is, is uh, strong enough according to one of the three legislations. Chances are that it will be good enough for the other two legislations. And I now know what your different, what your, um, uh, what your next question. Yeah, please. 
what are the ingredients of the program? Because it that's the, the whole point, right? And that's the whole point. And, and these different organizations or companies, perhaps they have business together. They are registered under different legislations and yet they have to comply in a way that they are transnationally acceptable. You said the other day that if one of the companies is framed to be a corrupt based organization, it might lose business. So please go ahead. Exactly. So this is when we go from uh, theory to uh, practice. Uh, what do I need to do to build a strong anti-corruption program? I will list uh, the different components of the anti-corruption program um, following uh, the list that is provided by uh, the French law. And as I said before, the ingredients are very similar. Uh, if we look at um, anti-corruption programs that are compliant with uh, uh, instructions and guidelines um, in the US and in the UK. Number one is a code of conduct or procedures. Uh, why? Very easy. It is because you need uh, people to know and to understand what it is required of them. Your code of conduct, your procedures have to be very clear, very practical, very succinct and accessible. And when I say accessible, uh, I mean two different things. Number one is materially or physically accessible. It means that I know where to go to find the code, to find the procedures, to read the rules that apply to me. So easy to access. And the second meaning of accessible is intellectually accessible. Code of conduct um, will apply to all the people acting on behalf of the company. They all have different uh, skills, different jobs. They're not all legal experts. So you have to avoid as much as you can legal jargon in your code of conduct. It has to be uh, understandable, intelligible to all the employees. So it has to be written in a, in, in a simple way, in a very direct way. And it cannot be 500 pages. Otherwise, uh, most of the people will not read it. And if they don't read it, they will not know which rules apply to them. This is why ingredient number one is code of conduct slash procedures. This is in the French law. You can see that uh, in, in um, the instructions, in the definition that the Department of Justice in the, U in the US uh, gives of a anti-corruption program. And you can see that as well in the, um, in the principles uh, of the guidance uh, to the um, application of the UK Bribery Act. And then the second ingredient is uh, uh, whistleblowing channels. You need to allow people in the company or even outside uh, the company to escalate information if they are aware of a breach of the law, if they are aware that their colleagues uh, perpetrated an act of corruption. So you create a whistleblowing channel um, to allow people to escalate that information. But this is not enough. You also need to protect the whistleblowers to protect the whistleblowers from any kind of retaliation. The whistleblower cannot be fired for providing an information on the uh, breach of the law, for example. In France, the uh, protection of whistleblowers was 
very importantly strengthened uh, at the um, end of 2022 with the transposition into national law of a European directive on the protection of whistleblowers. The protection of whistleblowers is absolutely crucial because if, if a person knows that they will be protected, they will certainly uh, more easily and more openly provide information, information that is ex essential uh, to have an understanding of what happens if there is a breach of the law, if there is corruption perpetrated in the company. And the protection of whistleblowers is extremely expensive. It can be even physical protection, protection of the person, uh, of the integrity of the person, but it can also, uh, and it is also legal protection. So it is an all-encompassing protection, which is uh, um, difficult somehow to put in place and certainly extremely expensive. So it is, once again, it is not enough what is written in the law, given whistleblowers a particular uh, legal status, a particular protection, but you also need to have the resources and to decide to use those resources to protect whistleblowers. And whistleblower channels were uh, the ingredient number two. Let's now go to ingredient number three, again, flow, following the order of Article 17 of the French law, is risk mapping. And risk mapping, even though uh, it's number three in the French law, I would say it is ingredient number one. I will use a, a culinary metaphor. The risk mapping is the number one ingredient that will determine the quantity and the quality of the other ingredients. Your risk mapping is a picture that you take of the risk landscape that will tell you what the risks of corruption are in your particular company in your particular context, given the country or countries where you operate, given the sector, given the third parties and the business partner you interact with. So it is really a photograph that you take that will give you a picture of what I call the, the risk landscape. So I, I, I move from a culinary metaphor to a, a uh, photography landscape metaphor. Once you have that picture, you will be able to determine, to assess what the risks are, and you will be able to determine what you need to do to uh, mitigate uh, those risks. This is why I said that this ingredient, the, the, the risk mapping, will tell you what the quality and the quantity of the other ingredients needs to be. If I know what my risks are, I will know how to, how to draft my code of conduct because the content of the code of conduct, the rules that I will give to myself, to my company, will be determined by the knowledge, the precise knowledge of the risks that my company faces. Of course, it's, I'm, I'm always talking about risks of corruption. So risk mapping, taking a good and accurate, a precise photograph of your risk landscape, it is absolutely essential to, to determine, to trigger all the other actions and to calibrate them very well. Ingredient number four, and we mentioned that in episode number one, is due diligence, due diligence on third parties. You need to understand um, the risks of corruption to which you are exposed because of the third parties you deal with, because of the business partners that you, that you work with. I, I will use another metaphor. You can have as friends, you can go out with people whose reputation is not particularly good. You can absolutely do that. 
but you need to take precautions. And this is the same for companies. You can do business with another company whose reputation is not particularly good, uh, corruption scandals, uh, conviction for uh, corruption. You can do that, but you need to be aware of that. You need to perform due diligence at the beginning of your uh, relation with that third party so that you can take the measures to protect yourself from that risk. So it is absolutely possible. You don't have to be extreme and to prevent yourself from doing business with a company whose, whose reputation is not particularly good. But you need to absolutely be aware of that and determine what you need to do, what you need to ask your business partner in order to protect yourself from any risk of corruption. Again, let's be very practical. You can ask your, your business partner uh, to, to give you um, their codes of conduct, their procedures. You can perform audit on the side of your business partner. Uh, you can also provide training to your business partner so that the business partner knows what your standards are in terms of fight against corruption, in terms of compliance, corporate compliance. And again, the reaction, the response of a lawyer and the basic response is to insert in your contract very robust clauses that will impose a, a certain kind of behavior to your business partner so that the risk of corruption is uh, uh, mitigated. I hope that these clauses are not those that appear in smaller letters than the whole part of the document, right? Um, no, <laughs> they have the same, they will have uh, to be exactly the same as the rest of the contract. Not to want to cut you, but you, you mentioned the whistleblowers earlier, and I'll, I'll come to the size of the, of the employees, but let me stay there for a while. And recently we have this whistleblower from Facebook and who had it. And could you elaborate well this protection mechanism of the whistleblowers? Because I understand that the way it's compared also that the US, UK and France anti-corruption law, it also warns about the whistleblowing in bad faith, which comes also with sanctions. How much of it is part of the strength of the organization to protect itself from any bad name? And then there's this whole conspiracy or what I'm trying to understand is how much of a protection there is for the whistleblower in a way that the company is not even creating scenarios to discredit the whistleblower. And then the whistleblower yeah. ends up in being sanctioned because some of those um, crimes, not everyone is able to prove. You, you said uh, whether it's an employee or an outsider. An outsider usually lacks means to prove it. I don't have the access to copy documents and start keeping at my place. Absolutely. There are several ways in which you can protect whistleblowers. Number one is confidentiality. In France, we consider that all the information coming from whistleblowers is sacred. Uh, it is even more confidential uh, than HR information. And already HR information is very confidential information. Um, a, very, a very limited number of people um, have access to HR information. Confidentiality covers three aspects. Number one is the confidentiality on the identity of the whistleblower. The identity of the whistleblower cannot be disclosed. 
if you were among the, the, the very limited number of people, the very small team who receives information from whistleblowers, you cannot disclose the identity, the name of the whistleblower. Second aspect is the identity of the person that was referred by the whistleblower as the author of a particular breach of the law or of an act of corruption. The identity of that person needs also to remain confidential. And the third aspect to which confidentiality applies is the, the, the facts that are reported by the whistleblower. So this very, very high level of confidentiality is the uh, first response to the need of protection for the whistleblower. As a consequence of that, um, you have another way to protect whistleblowers. It's again, related to confidentiality. It's the, the way you uh, create uh, and implement the channel. There are companies uh, that uh, provide platforms for whistleblowers. And so uh, um, commercial organization can use very secure encrypted platforms that are, uh, that are provided by, by companies who create uh, whistleblowing uh, forms. I remember using one and we needed to use a double password to access the information. As a whistleblower, you were given a password to access the platform so that you can receive and the information uh, and communicate with people in the compliance department that receive and handle reports coming from whistleblowers as well as the investigations. So very, very high level of confidentiality. The second way in which you can protect whistleblowers is protection from retaliation. An employee of the company cannot be fired or punished in any way for reporting a breach of the law, for reporting a bribe, for reporting corruption. So protection against retaliation is another response, is another way to protect uh, whistleblowers. This uh, at the corporate level, other actions can be taken at a, at a state level, at the level of the government. And this is all the resources that you can invest for legal protection of whistleblowers. And this is, I would say, the most difficult part. In, in some situations, uh, the whistleblower uh, reports uh, facts that are so, so big, so scandalous, uh, that they can put the life of the whistleblower in danger. And this is what there needs to be a, a, a public intervention, an intervention from the government in providing that person an adequate protection. You mentioned about uh, obligations of the companies uh, to establish the anti-corruption mechanism. And one thing I, I do not understand why there is a limit uh, of categories of 500 employees and then the company is required to have a specific mechanism. Why that number and what else can be done below that number? Because I'm trying to understand that corruption is everywhere. You explained it uh, greatly in our first series of, of this topic. Very specifically, 500 employees. What if it's 499 employees? Then any act is considered non-corruption because of the number of employees? No, of course. Corruption is, is, never, uh, is never legal, and we know that. I think that there is no system on earth where corruption is considered as legal. 
and corruption has been in the uh, French penal code and in penal codes of other countries for a very long time. And the fact that the US adopted anti-corruption law in 1977, the UK in 2010 and France in 2016, doesn't mean that you could um, perpetrate acts of corruption before 1977, 2010, 2016. What the so-called anti-corruption laws did is to impose an obligation on commercial organizations to take measures to prevent corruption. It is not just no corruption, but it is you as a company need to take measures, need to put in place an anti-corruption program to prevent corruption from happening in your own organization. So of course that there is, there is a big no on corruption everywhere. But with anti-corruption laws, there is this further level of um, obligation for companies to take into account the risk of corruption and to take measures to prevent it, to not find themselves in a situation of failure to prevent corruption. And this explains why there are thresholds and only big companies or relatively big companies have the obligation to put in place the so-called the official anti-corruption program. That is because in general, compliance programs, whether it is compliance with anti-corruption laws, whether it is compliance with data protection regulations, is extremely expensive, not to say very, very heavy to put in place. And you need to have human resources, financial resources to put in place these programs, as this is why Smaller companies don't have this obligation. Uh, otherwise, it would be too expensive uh, for them to, uh, to comply with it. But this doesn't mean that smaller organizations have no obligation to uh, um, prevent corruption. A few obligations of the French law also uh, apply to a smaller organization. And in general, in, in my work, what I, um, what I suggest to smaller companies, knowing that they, they might have an interest, they might ask themselves, what do I have to do? I am in no obligation to create an anti-corruption program, but at the same time, I would like to do something. I always advise them to create a, a, what I call the mini-compliance program. You don't have to put in place the full-blown anti-corruption program. But there are a few ingredients, a few aspects of it that really need to exist in any company, um, which leads me very easily to uh, one additional uh, component of a robust anti-corruption program, which is training. The French law only speaks about training uh, in the U.S. system, in the U.K. system, it is training and communication. Of course, in France, we also uh, have to speak about, um, speak about corruption, communicate on corruption, but it is not as such in the list of the uh, components of an anti-corruption program. Training means that you need to train employees or, or people associated with the company so that they really understand what corruption is and they also understand how they uh, should respond to corruption. I will give you a more uh, detailed example um, using uh, my knowledge of the French system. In France, uh, 
On top of the law, we also have recommendations coming from the French Anti-Corruption Agency. The last version of the uh, recommendation dates back to uh, beginning of 2021. I think it was January uh, 12th when they were published. Recommendations uh, give you, I would say, practical instructions on how to create your anti-corruption program. The law gives you the main ingredients, and I would say that the recommendations uh, give the, the recipe for the creation of the anti-corruption program. According to the recommendations, you have two different obligations. You have training and awareness raising. For all the employees of the company, you need to raise awareness. You, you have a generic obligation of training, of information around corruption. You need to tell them what corruption is, um, what the main rules are, and what to do. And this is a very, as I said before, this is a very generic obligation. Um, it is not a tailor-made training. You also have a second obligation, the training obligation. Training is a specific, a specific training that you give to people in the company who are particularly exposed to risk of corruption. In this case, you really need to take a tailor-made approach in which you tell them what the specific risks uh, are for them. And you also need to tell them exactly what to do uh, so that in case of corruption, if they are offered uh, a bribe, they will know exactly how to respond. Let's imagine that I determine that an area um, of risk is my interaction with people who operate in the, in the public, in the political uh, sphere. I will immediately know as a consequence that all my people, all the people, all the employees uh, or the people at the top level of my uh, public relations, uh, institutional relations department will be at risk of corruption. And I will give a very specific training to these people so that they will be protected from the risk of corruption and so that the risk of corruption coming from interactions with politicians in our uh, specific example will be mitigated. In December 2021, almost in a cascade or in a symphony, the UK, the US, uh, France and OECD, they seem to update their, their work in, while the, the US had launched a, a new anti-corruption strategy there and then the UK the same, the Court of Appeal outruns conviction. This is uh, from the top 10 international anti-corruption developments for December 21. My take, as you're explaining, is that it seems that there is a, a marriage of the US, France, and the UK anti-corruption mechanisms. They go in, in a symphony. And then, of course, together, they shape the way uh, as the, the OECD, together with other countries. How would you place your understanding that sometimes somewhere there are conflicts because you very specifically mentioned that most of what happens there is dictated in a diplomatic environment now i'm trying to understand the international relations of those how do they uh, weigh in their interests to maintain that while the anti-corruption strategies and mechanisms are considered the politics is also in place the legal aspect is that the three countries you just mentioned, the US, the UK, and, and France, are parties to the um, OECD Anti-Bribery Convention. So they have very similar obligations in terms of fight against corruption. The 
OECD Convention is a is a legal international legal binding instrument, and all these countries uh, not only have to comply with the obligations that are in the convention, but they are also scrutinized, monitored by the OECD working group, um, anti-corruption working group. So they have to comply with that, and this is why their system are, as you said before, symphony. There is harmony between them. They're similar. And the second aspect is a political one. These countries have a strong interest in uh, cooperating, in showing each other they're taking action uh, to fight against corruption. Because as I said before, if one country doesn't cooperate, the other country will intensify the extraterritorial application, the extraterritorial enforcement actions. So if I don't want the interference coming from the other country, I better take action myself. And to be in in a good dialogue, in a good cooperation with other countries. So you have the legal aspect, the fact that all these countries uh, have this overarching set of obligations in the OECD Convention, but you also have the political slash strategic slash diplomatic aspect in which countries need to cooperate, need, need to be in good dialogue if they don't want to be, quote unquote, stabbed in the back by the other country. So it is a very uh, delicate uh, system and they uh, uh, discovered that it is much better for them to cooperate than to not cooperate. Thank you, Valentina. It was my pleasure. Uh, thank you, Leo.